0: Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual and spirited community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning and we're very glad you're here. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in every person. And so in the spirit of that heritage, we greet the divine in our midst on a Sunday morning by turning to the folks around us and welcoming them here this morning. Let us say together the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another.
1: Good morning. Our call to worship today is by Jody Pico, and it's from her novel, Vanishing acts. I suddenly remember being very little and embraced by my father. I would try to put my arms around my father's waist, hug him back. I could never reach around the equator of his body. He was that much larger than life. Then, one day, I could do it. I held him instead of him holding me, and all I wanted at that moment was to have it back the other way.
0: This congregation is guided by a perfect storm of good ideas. (laughs) One group is our seven principles, soon perhaps to become eight. We're talking about it nationwide. One group is our values that are particular to this congregation. One is our goals or ends, particular to this congregation again. And one is our mission, again, particular to this congregation, which guides us on our way. We hang it on the wall or paint it on the wall once we get a new wall, and we say it every Sunday. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community.
1: This is a reading from the novel, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, by Jonathan Safran Fair. Darling, you asked me to write you a letter. I do not know why I'm writing you this letter or what this letter is supposed to be about, but I am writing it nonetheless because I love you very much and trust that you have some good purpose for it. I hope that one day you will have the experience of doing something you do not understand for someone you love, your Father.
0: Now is the time in our service when we join together in an attitude of prayer and meditation speak or listen to God as we understand God, or to our inner wisdom, or just follow our breath as it comes in and out of our bodies. It is in this quiet place that we seek wisdom and clarity. When our outrage is screaming in our heads so much that we cannot function, when our sorrow and heartbreak seems complete, when we cannot find our footing. We can't tell what things we can change and what things we can't change. We need wisdom and clarity. Let us enter into the wise silence together.
2: Last night I dreamed I was a child Out where the pines grow Wild and tall trying to make it into the forest before the dawn of this fall heard the Field. when my heart pounded down a broken path, with the devil snapping it. Was stood shining hard and bright. Branches and brambles tore my clothes and scratched my skin. There I ran till I fell, shaking me. Just stay into for the kind of sky.
0: Talk about some of our fathers, our forefathers, and Unitarian Universalism, Unitarianism, really. Today, some of our fathers—you know—Happy Father's Day. Some of our fathers um, were—we had great father moments, like the one captured by the Jack and Jill clubs on the front of our bulletin. You know, where dad's smiling and kids are smiling, um, and—and God willing, that's the reality for most of your life with your dad. And some of us have um, somewhat more complex relationships. And um, mostly, what I really hope is that you can say that your dad was doing his best, which I think most of our Unitarian forebears were doing their best. Most of them. I want to do the seek the truth in love thing that's part of the covenant of the church that we say when we, um, one of the covenants of the church that we say when we light our chalice. We're going to seek the truth in love today. We're going to talk about Unitarians and abolition. I came into Unitarian Universalism in South Carolina. I hadn't heard of y'all before, of us before because we don't like evangelizing really. We're shy and so people don't really hear about us when they need to. And I thought I have found my people and we are social justice warriors and we're amazing. Just series of beauty and wonder and historical Um, honor, and then uh, I started finding out more, (laughs) like you do, and I found out that the particular church that I was being a minister in there, uh, the Unitarian Church, had had a big split during the Civil Rights Movement, and they had a split, uh, not because it was about um, integrating the YMCA in this small southern South Carolina town. Now, there wasn't anybody who did not want the YMCA integrated in that church. No. The split was over how militant to be. And the three groups were, uh, we want it changed, and we'll work in a respectable way through the politics of the town, and we'll get it changed. And uh, I know the head of the Y, and he's my brother-in-law, and we're going to talk. And then there was a group that was like, no, we're going to agitate, we're going to disrupt, we're going to get over there, we're going to make noise, and we're going to make it so unpleasant for them, they're going to feel the pressure. And then the third group was like, I don't know, it's politics, and this is church. (laughs) Um, So, but no one there was really against justice. And so I thought, well, maybe there's no Unitarian who's actually against justice. John C. Calhoun was a Unitarian, y'all. This was hard on me. John C. Calhoun was born in 1782, died in 1850. He was a United States representative, a senator, a secretary of war, secretary of state, and vice president under two different presidents. He was the nemesis of John Quincy Adams. Uh, And together they built All Souls Unitarian Church in Washington, D.C. And they worshipped there together, even though John Quincy Adams was forcefully anti-enslavement of men and women. And John C. Calhoun thought it was just the way things should be. Calhoun's rallying cry was, uh, States rights! which means states' rights to enslaved men and women. And his other rallying cry was nullification. And nullification means that uh, he thought that if a state didn't agree with a federal law, they should be able to not have it. George Wallace thought that too, but they sent the troops down and disabused him of his idea. He was a son of South Carolina, but he was educated at Yale where he heard Unitarian ideas and liked them. He decided, uh, the president of Yale kept trying to get him to say he was a Christian, but he never would. Because he was Unitarian and he liked uh, the theology. He had been raised in a Calvinist household and he had a good work ethic and a good hard suspicion of pleasure. He did not approve of dancing, and he was not a foodie in any kind of way, and he would have hated Austin. (laughs) After graduation, he went to Charleston, South Carolina to briefly study law in a law firm down there, but then he went up to Connecticut, Litchfield, Connecticut, which I don't know if y'all know, but Connecticut is a hotbed of racism, Uh, might surprise you. It was at that time, that school was a place where there was a lot of anti-federalist and secessionist fervor. And he absorbed all of that and came back to South Carolina, bought a bunch of land, became a gentleman farmer, which translated means um, he named his farm, uh, called it a plantation, and had all the work done by enslaved men and women outside the house and inside the house. So he fought everywhere he was in all those positions in the government. He fought uh, for slavery, and he fought against even being able to talk about it. You know how sometimes they won't let a bill come on the floor? Well, um, they had a rule, which John Quincy Adams kept pushing against, which said you can't even debate slavery in the United States Senate or Congress. Can't even talk about it. There are big, big statues of him in South Carolina, um, and I blame him for uh, Transcendentalist Margaret Fuller's death. Um, Margaret Fuller was a wild woman who had charmed all the Unitarian men in uh, in New York and Boston. She went and went to Italy, married a prince. Maybe she married him. We're not sure. Maybe they just had a little baby. Um, But uh, (laughs) she was coming back with her baby and her prince, coming back to New England, even though all her friends said, girl, do not come back here because you have a little baby and a prince. We're not sure you got married. This is New England, and this is 18. You know, don't do it. But she... She was wild, and so she did. Anyway, there was a marble bust of John C. Calhoun in the hold of that ship, and they got uh, caught in a storm right off the coast of the U.S., and that marble bust went bang, bang, bang against the hold of that ship until a hole broke through and the ship sank. And she was close enough to shore where people were just watching the shipwreck. They couldn't really either couldn't or didn't really do anything for them, but they were uh, gathering treasure the next day that had washed up on the shore. Anyway, those people were thrifty. (laughs) Sorry, I digressed by blaming him for her death. Um, The American Unitarian Association had put a, a stand against... Slavery into their um, portfolio of political, social issues. And they sent a minister from Boston down to the Savannah Church to preach to them about the Unitarian Association's stand against enslaving men and women. And the Savannah Church wouldn't even let him in the pulpit and send him packing back to Boston with the message, do not send anybody down here again. Um, here's a quote from John McCauley's uh, Unitarianism in the Antebellum South. Do not send anybody down here again. We do not want to sully the purity of our religion with politics. Another Unitarian was president very soon after that. Uh, He was a vice president, but with the death of Zachary Taylor. Millard Fillmore became president. He was a member of the Buffalo Unitarian Church in New York. He did not want to identify with either uh, the sides, which was, you think the country is polarized now. Woo! It was polarized over the issue of enslavement of men and women. I, I'm having a hard time realizing how people could have been on the other side, but they were. So, um, historical perspective, I guess. Um, They were talking about, and many of you are steeped in the politics of 1850, and so I might make a mistake here, I'm not sure, but they were talking about um, new states to let into the Union and which states were going to be able to have slavery and which states were going to ban slavery. And uh, there were, of course, people on both sides in all the different states fighting about this, and uh, there was a, a compromise proposed by Henry Clay, who was from Kentucky. And uh, the compromise couldn't pass through the House and Senate, but they broke it up into five other bills and got them passed one by one. And one of them was uh, a harshening of the Fugitive Slave Act. And this The harshening part was not just that slave catchers from the south could come up and grab people in the north, um, but that northern people could also be arrested and tried for helping any escaped, formerly enslaved men and women. So it was a terrible situation, and people in the north were fighting against this because they did not want to be helping the south with this but they also did not want to be arrested. So, Millard Fillmore had to decide whether to sign this bill. Good Unitarian man. All our good values. All our good theology. There are ways to go very, very wrong while being a very, very lovely person. And he he valued the union more than anything else. He said, I have sworn an oath to uphold the union. And so I have to sign this bill. And I want to think of this as one country from the coast of Maine to the very limit of Texas. he delayed signing for 3 days until September 18th 1850 he knew he would he knew his political career would be over if he signed this bill and yet to preserve the union in his mind that's the reason he signed it there was a senator sumner charles sumner who started campaigning immediately to repeal the act in the senate he said Better for Fillmore had he never been born. Better for his memory and the good name of his children had he never been president. And that has stuck to him. People used to say, oh, Millard Fillmore was the worst president we ever had. (laughs) Even after Fillmore never doubted that he had taken the right action, even back in baltimore going to his church being disagreed with by most of the congregants and the minister with whom he was friends he never complained about their hawking him about this decision he'd made he said this just mm, he said god knows that i detest slavery but it is an existing evil for which we are not responsible right what? I wonder what kind of things we're saying today that somebody 100 years from now is going to go, (laughs) what? It is an existing evil for which we are not responsible, and we must endure it and give it such protections as is guaranteed by the Constitution till we can get rid of it without destroying the last hope of free government in the world. That's what he thought he was doing. One of our historians of our movement, the Unitarian and Universalist movement, is named Conrad Wright, and he uh, wrote this. He said there were basically three camps about abolition um, before the war. There was the William Lloyd Garrison camp, and William Lloyd Garrison was, uh, had been uh, influenced by Lydia Marie Child, who was a Unitarian who wrote a pamphlet called An Appeal in Favor of that Class of Americans Called Africans. She influenced Garrison, and a lot of Unitarians were in that camp, which said, slavery has to cease right away, right away, no more discussion, nothing gradual, it's got to go, it's a continuing, ongoing horror, and it must stop. And then there were the respectables, who go, you know, we're going to um, work as hard as we can in our politics, with our vote, and we're going to make uh, slavery go away um, gradually, if we have to. It can be gradual, but it's going to go, and we just don't want to upset the economic or political order. Uh, we don't want to throw the South into chaos, because, you know, their economy depends on these people being enslaved, and uh, and it will be hard on both the formerly enslaved people and uh, all the other free people in the south if there is a big uh, war and then there were the people who uh, said we are morally opposed to slavery for sure Uh, we are morally opposed to it but we just don't like politics in our churches and then there were those uh, including the Unitarian minister Theodore Parker who was part of the Underground Railroad. He had, a, he had a, a room in the back of his church where people could stay while they were escaping. Uh, he was still a horrendously racist, but his actions were to help the escaping people. He and five other guys, another Unitarian minister named Thomas Higginson, uh, two other people who had lots of money, and to other guys who had lots of influence, they called themselves the Secret Six. The Secret Six met with Frederick Douglass. They met with one another. You know, all, all them people knew each other up there. Susan B. Anthony was friends with Frederick Douglass, who was friends with Lucretia Mott. I mean, everybody, there just weren't that many people. <laughs> That's my thought about it, but anyway, they all influenced one another. But the Secret Six decided that slavery was not going to end without violence, and there needed to be an uprising, and they needed to arm uh, enslaved men and women. Maybe I don't know, in order to facilitate an uprising, and they kept and they met with John Brown, who was an abolitionist. They call him a fiery abolitionist, which he was, but he was also a murderous abolitionist. He'd killed uh, families in Texas, uh, sorry, Texas, Kansas, um, in Kansas, who were uh, pro-slavery families. They gave him money to fund the raid on Harper's Ferry, where he was going to capture weapons to distribute to the enslaved men so they could have a good uprising. And the Secret Six, they weren't completely sure that they were on board with the bloodshed and violence that was going to ensue, but they they funded him anyway. And he was captured, it was not a successful raid. And the New York Times broke the story that about the Secret Six three of them instantly uh, went to Canada because the police were coming. One of them checked himself into a mental institution. Um, One of them stuck around and kept trying to get John Brown out of jail, risking arrest himself. And uh, Theodore Parker was already, he'd already traveled to Italy. He had tuberculosis and he was trying to, Uh, kind of bake it out of his lungs in Italy and he was hanging out with Elizabeth Barrett Browning and her husband Robert Browning. So he did not get arrested because he just died of tuberculosis in Italy. So you can see that there there were people who thought they were doing right and they were doing their best. I think not the pro-slavery people, I cannot even say that there were fine people among those people, uh, no. But there were people who were uh, against slavery morally in various um, from various positions and in various points of willingness to be disruptive and to fight and to do violence or to, to make uh, political efforts. And I want to say it's always been this way. It's always been this way. We have people now on the, um, well, in the 90s and early 2000s, it was marriage equality. A lot of people were like, no, we need it now. We're going to have it now. And the middle of the road respectables were like, oh my gosh, don't do that. You're going to make everybody so mad. There's going to be backlash. People did this to Martin Luther King too. No, don't make people mad. Backlash. He was like, Psh, I'm not making them mad. They're already mad. I'm just showing you that they're mad. Um, so anyway, uh, and then there were the people who were like, yes, I'm for marriage equality, but I just don't want to talk politics in church. So now it's immigration issues and Black Lives Matter, and there are people still in all these camps among us. So um, I, I don't know what, to, how to name them or how to – I've been calling them radicals, respectables, and uh, – don't do politics in church people, but we have all of those people among us. And here's what I want to say. I want to say we need the radicals. We need those people who are like, this has to stop right now. We're going to disrupt till we get it done. And we need the respectables. Because in every social movement, usually, there's a choice of who the powers that be are going to deal with, right? They're going to deal with Martin Luther King, who is radical, but uh, not really scary. And then there's Malcolm X, who's radical and pretty scary. And so it's like, okay, which one do you want to deal with? We're going to deal with the one that doesn't scare us. Uh, For women's rights, there was that, too, for, for the vote for women, suffrage. There was a respectable woman. And she was a lovely married woman with a big Victorian presence. And um, and then there were the scary women who uh, chained themselves to Woodrow Wilson's gate and and were arrested and force fed and tortured in prison. And then the politicians were like, "Do you want to do you want to deal with this nice respectable lady with the hat and a hat pin, or do you want to deal with this wild banshee who's screaming and?" Uh, chaining herself to the president's fence. One or the other. So every movement has to have the radicals and the respectables. And really the ones we don't need in the movement are like, mm, I'm not really interested in politics. I don't really care. I mean, I'm for justice. <laughs> I mean, like, who's against justice? But we have to know... Um, when we are silent on these matters, especially those among us who claim the privilege of uh, white skin, and those of us who claim the privilege of citizenship, and those of us who claim the privilege of, of uh, heterosexuality, and the privilege of economic stability, um, I could go on. Those among us who have privilege of some kind or another, um, when we are silent, that is a way Of committing violence. You have to speak. You have to choose. You can be respectable. You can be radical. You got to be something. But we need each other. How do we talk to each other? We talk to each other with curiosity and respect. If another person is in a position that you don't understand, just say, Help me understand. I don't understand where you're coming from. Help me. Why Now, what is so good about the order here that you don't want to disrupt it? Or what is so bad about the order here that you want to disrupt it? Don't you think disrupting is not a good way to handle things? I know when I disrupt it in my family, they might say, this is not me talking about me and my family. I got smacked. My dad never smacked me ever. He just got disappointed. And he wanted to talk. (laughs) By which we meant he talked. (laughs) Anyway, so we, we have to figure out how to be all together in this movement, working for justice in our different ways, and not despise each other, not scorn each other, not shame each other. Does that make sense? Wonderful. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Sing with me if you care to. The lone wild bird. still with thee, nor leaves thy sight. And I am thine, I rest in thee. Great Spirit, come
2: and
0: rest in me. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.